0: The exact circumstances that caused Edward Strzok to lose his job are a little unclear. But what we do know is that on a late fall afternoon in 1863, a knife fight broke out in the hotel bar inside Manhattan's Stratton Hotel. A drunk patron got into an altercation with the bartender and attacked him with a knife. At the time, Edward Strzok was a police officer whose beat included the area surrounding the Stratton. But by the time Officer Strzok responded several minutes later, the assailant was already dead. A New York City police detective, who happened to be strolling nearby, heard the commotion going on, ran inside, and shot the knife-wielding attacker dead. The details of the story that remain in question are those regarding Officer Struck's actions that afternoon. Several witnesses claimed Strzok had actually been standing right outside the hotel when the attack occurred. Only instead of rushing to stop it, he turned tail and ran after being told the deranged man was armed with a gun, not a knife. At the time, all New York City beat cops were armed only with a billy club. When Strzok's superiors at the Manhattanville precinct heard of the man's apparent cowardice, they immediately fired him. After Strzok went home that day, he told a much different version of events to his wife Lydia. He informed her that he had actually been several blocks away at the time of the stabbing, and that when he heard someone had gone insane inside the hotel, he rushed to the scene as quickly as he could, even hopping a streetcar in order to save time. But alas, he'd been too late. The real reason Strzok claimed he'd been dismissed had not been because of an act of cowardice, but rather because he'd been far too good of a cop. He told his wife he was practically the only honest officer in a precinct full of corrupt cops who made their living taking bribes to look the other way. This, of course, didn't exactly jibe with the behavior Lydia had already seen in her husband, Edward. But nonetheless, Lydia chose to take her husband at his word. Lydia was, after all, a devoted wife and mother. And both she and Edward were devout Christians. The Bible said it was her duty to stand by her husband. Lydia actually met Edward when they both attended the same church. At the same time, Edward Struck proposed marriage to her. He was already a 39-year-old widower with six young children of his own. Lydia was a girl of only 17. Within a year of their marriage, Lydia gave birth to a healthy baby girl. Six more children were soon to follow over the coming years. By the time the barroom brawl occurred in the Stratton Hotel, the number of children they had to care for had decreased. By then, all six of Edward's children from his previous marriage had grown up and moved away. Tragically, Edward and Lydia's daughter Josephine died of an intestinal illness while still in infancy. Although knowing what we know now, this cause of death should raise some red flags. At the time Edward struck, lost his job, he still had six young mouths to feed. Being unemployed with a family to sport came as a terrible blow to Edward's ego, and he quickly spiraled into a deep depression. It got to the point where he refused to look for work or see his friends. Soon he became a complete shut-in, often refusing to even get out of bed. Edward was ashamed to go out in public feeling that he was the lowest kind of man, one who could not provide for his family. As the days wore on, things grew so dire that on more than one occasion, Edward took his pistol from his nightstand and placed the barrel in his mouth, just to see what it felt like. In the meantime, Lydia became increasingly concerned for herself. If no one was bringing in any money, how would she survive? She went to Captain Hart, Edward's former police supervisor, seeking help. After Edward was fired, Hart actually stuck up for him and tried unsuccessfully to get him reinstated to the police force. When Captain Hart heard Lydia's story, he tried telling her in the most polite terms possible that the man was clearly losing his mind. One thing he told her was that Edward, quote, needed to be put out of the way. Although Hart actually meant to imply that Edward needed to be committed to an insane asylum for his own good, Lydia took an entirely different meaning from this suggestion. She instead scraped together ten cents and went to a drugstore in Harlem, where she purchased an ounce of powdered arsenic. At the time, arsenic was commonly sold over the counter as the cure-all for any number of ailments. Not only was it used as rat poison, but among other things, it was also considered a popular beauty treatment. You could actually find advertisements for bella vita arsenic beauty tablets which purported to be able to clear up a rough complexion eliminating all manner of pimples eczema blackheads freckles and sunburns back in the 19th century the pharmaceutical industry was completely unregulated meaning you could easily purchase all sorts of toxic substances that were prescribed as legitimate medicinal cures everything from arsenic to cocaine to morphine and even mercury to cure whatever ailed you. Back home, Lydia Struck fixed her husband a bowl of oatmeal gruel, which was one of the few meals they could still afford. Only this time, she added in a bit of extra seasoning into the mix. By then, Edward was already bedridden, and she helped feed him the poisoned porridge. She even fed him a few more servings as the afternoon wore on. Looking at him in the pathetic state he'd fallen to, Lydia decided that murdering Edward would be a mercy. Although there is a quaint idea spurred on by old Victorian mystery stories that arsenic poisoning is a quick and painless way to die, nothing is further from the truth. The symptoms begin with the victim suffering from an insatiable thirst, followed by the throat constricting nearly to the point of cutting off breathing, along with severe abdominal pain. From there, the bowels let go uncontrollably. The victim's skin will start to turn blue as the flow of oxygen in the bloodstream becomes restricted. This is often followed by excruciating muscle contractions and convulsions, leading right up to the moment of death. This agonizing process can take anywhere from a few hours to several days. Edward Strzok suffered through all this until the following morning when he finally expired. Lydia, ever the dutiful wife, remained by her husband's bedside as he lay there dying in excruciating pain. The attending physician who gave a cursory examination of Edward's body listed the cause of death on the official certificate as consumption. Lydia Strzok had successfully gotten away with murder. And it wasn't long after that when she realized that if she could get away with it with her own husband, she might be able to get away with it again. That was when Lydia began studying all those young mouths she still had to feed, and she began to wonder, what if she did away with them too? I'm Nate Hale, currently wondering why my coffee tastes so funny, and this is The Conspirators. For about a year, starting in late 1989, a series of male motorists in Central Florida were found dead in the woods. These murders were all the work of a woman named Eileen Waranos, who had grown up in an extremely brutal childhood and went on to become a roadside sex worker. After her arrest, Waranos insisted that each of her seven victims had all been cases of self-defense. She told authorities she had shot and killed the men only after they attacked her although the prosecutors looked very differently on these murders, pointing out that after shooting each victim multiple times with a 22 semi semi-automatic, Wuornos had stolen their cars and their wallets and dumped the corpses in a number of secluded areas. At her trial, the prosecutor portrayed Eileen Waranos as a bloodthirsty monster who killed both out of greed and from a sociopathic euphoria she felt when killing. The jury agreed, and for a time, the name Eileen Waranos dominated headlines, As America's first female serial killer. This is not actually true, but the media never let the facts get in the way of a good story. There have actually been several women throughout history who could potentially claim the title of first female serial killer in the United States. Lydia Struck, who would go on to be better known as Lydia Sherman, was just one of them. Although the term serial killer is often attributed to Robert Ressler, a legendary FBI profiler instrumental in creating their behavioral sciences division in the 1970s. Some people actually point to a 1966 book, The Meaning of Murder, by John Brophy, as the first time the term serial killer was used. But even though the actual phrase serial killer is a relatively modern invention, there have long been psychiatrists and criminal investigators who recognized that there existed a certain kind of deranged individual who enjoyed killing so much that they did it again and again. Back in 1866, Dr. Richard von Kraft Ebbing published what is considered one of the seminal works about deviant behavior, The Psychopathia Sexualis. In his book, Dr. Kraft Ebbing documented numerous cases of mental aberrations, including foot fetishes, necrophilia, and a number of individuals who committed brutal murders for seemingly no reason. Some of these case studies were of individuals who repeated these terrible crimes enough times that they would fit the classical definition of a serial killer today. The story of Lydia Sherman was not described in the Psychopathia Sexualis. Although Dr. Kraft-Ebbing does try to explain the forces inside the human mind that might drive someone like Lydia to murder her husband and children and just keep going from there. During the late 19th century, a few male serial killers, including Jack the Ripper and H.H. Holmes, dominated the headlines. At the same time, there also existed a prevailing fear of female killers as well. Although the general consensus seemed to be that most female murderers were almost exclusively poisoners. This idea was both more than a little sexist as, well, as highly inaccurate. Even still, it remained widely believed that any sort of murder that was more physical and hands-on had to be the work of a man, whereas poison was more of a woman's weapon. According to the book Women Who Kill by Ann Jones, the author speculates that such a sexist fear of female poisoners can directly be tied toward the projected fears men saw in the growing women's rights movement. It seemed that women were no longer content to be just subservient housewives, and had begun asserting themselves in the most extreme way possible by poisoning their domineering husbands. As Jones points out, the late 19th century saw female poisoners become a standard culprit in a lot of fictional mystery stories from the era. This also helped form the belief in female poisoners being everywhere, which quite possibly went on to inspire a number of women in real life who felt stuck in their domestic situations, and were thus driven to do exactly what the fictional mystery stories claimed they were doing. By the time Lydia Strzok murdered her husband Edward, she was 42 years old with no means of support for her six children. It didn't take long after Edward was dead for her to begin considering that along with no longer having a husband to care for, the only way out of her current predicament was to no longer be a mother either. It was about a month after Lydia poisoned her husband in the late spring of 1864 when she began to consider how much easier life would be if she had even fewer mouths to feed. As she would go on to confess later, she saw her youngest three children, six-year-old Martha Ann, four-year-old Edward Jr., and nine-month-old William, as the greatest burdens on her, since none of them could do anything for her and were incapable of caring for themselves. Lydia pondered the matter for several days before coming to the conclusion that she'd be better off if her children were out of the way as well. Lydia would go on to confess how during the first week of July she fed arsenic to her three youngest children. The confession she gave to authorities later on is chilling to read because of how dispassionately she describes the murder of her own kids as a means to get ahead in life. Her daughter, Martha Ann, was the first to die. The doctor who examined the little girl before and after she died couldn't come up with any definitive explanation as to what was making her sick. But whatever this mysterious illness was that swept through Lydia's home, it soon claimed her two youngest sons Edward and William as well. The doctor's official report attributed the children's deaths to remittent fever and bronchitis. At the time, arsenic poison was never even considered. Although today the idea of three children dying under mysterious circumstances in the same home, within a couple days of each other, would raise some serious alarm bells about the possibility of foul play. But back in the late 19th century, medical science was nowhere near as advanced as it is today. And infectious diseases such as tuberculosis were rampant. It wasn't uncommon for disease to wipe out whole families, which is part of the reason that so many families had so many children back then. Once Lydia's three youngest children were out of the way, her personal prospects began to look up. Things became even easier for her after her 14-year-old son George got a job as a painter's assistant, and was able to begin bringing home a steady $2.50 a week. This made Lydia happy and undoubtedly saved George's life, at least for a little while. Over time, George developed a condition known as painter's colic, which was a quaint way to describe chronic lead poisoning from ingesting and inhaling a toxic level of lead particles in the paint. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com specialoffer special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com specialoffer special offer. At first, Lydia gave George a few days to recuperate. But as the days wore on and George didn't appear to be getting any better, Lydia began to wonder what would happen if George became a permanent burden on her once again. After about a week, Lydia did what she thought was the only thing she could do under the circumstances. She mixed George a cup of tea laced with arsenic. He died the following morning. During this time, Lydia met a neighborhood physician named L. Rosenstein. He was the attending physician who came to her home to treat her dying children. Rosenstein was impressed by the care and attention Lydia paid to her children, never leaving their bedsides as each of them gasped out their final breaths. In fact, he was so impressed with Lydia's bedside manner that Rosenstein offered her a job as his full-time nurse. What exactly Lydia did to Dr. Rosenstein's patients during this time is a bit of a mystery. Although it's been speculated that Lydia might have helped speed along the demise of some of Dr. Rosenstein's patients, no real evidence of this has ever come to light, nor did Lydia ever admit to doing so in her signed confession. By this point, Lydia only had two children remaining, her 18-year-old daughter, who was also named Lydia, and her 12-year-old daughter, Ann Eliza, who Lydia described in her confession as the happiest child she ever saw. Eighteen-year-old Lydia worked for a while as a clerk in a dry goods store in Harlem. But a particularly harsh winter caused little Ann Eliza to become frequently ill with a fever. With their mother working as a nurse, this forced the younger Lydia to have to frequently miss work in order to stay home with her younger sister. Eventually, she was forced to give up her clerk job entirely, and she instead turned to sewing bonnet frames at home to bring in a bit of money. But this didn't sit well with the girl's mother. Not only was her younger daughter's frequent illness a financial drain on her, but now her older daughter wasn't contributing as much financially as she could either. Lydia the elder came to decide that the only logical solution to this dilemma was to get Annalisa out of the way like she did with her other children. This would also allow her eldest daughter to get back to work once again. So once more she dipped into the little bottle of arsenic powder that she had turned to so many times before. Lydia mixed a few grams of the poison into some medicine that she fed to Aunt Then she sat by the girl's bedside and waited for the convulsions and vomiting to begin. As the girl's agony wore on, Lydia gave her another dose, and then another after that. It took four days for 12-year-old Aunt to die. Dr. Rosenstein examined the little girl's body and determined the cause of death to be typhoid fever. For about another six weeks, Lydia the Elder and her daughter Lydia continued to live together in a tiny apartment on Upper Broadway. But in early May, the younger Lydia went to visit her stepsister and returned home with a fever that sent her straight to bed. The girl's ever-dutiful mother took care of her, and at one point went to the druggist to get some medicine for her. But, just as with all her other children, Lydia Struck's last daughter just grew sicker and sicker until she died on May 19, 1866. And just as with Ann Eliza, Dr. Rosenstein diagnosed the illness as typhoid. One curious part of this story is that later on, Lydia insisted she didn't murder this last child. She freely admitted to killing all the others, but her last daughter, Lydia, she claimed really got sick and died. And considering how rampant disease was back then, this is certainly a possibility. Although some of the people who saw the 18-year-old Lydia during the period she lay there dying insisted she bore all the symptoms of arsenic poisoning. There was a Reverend Payson from the First Presbyterian Church who was summoned to the girl's deathbed. He later told authorities that he had personally visited a number of poor lost souls who had consumed arsenic to commit suicide. Payson claimed that young Lydia bore a disturbing resemblance to all the other arsenic victims he had witnessed throughout his career. Reverend Payson's suspicions only grew a few weeks later when he received an unexpected visit from Lydia's adult stepson, Cornelius Struck. Cornelius had long held his own suspicions about his stepmother, and after he and Reverend Payson traded notes, he came away even more convinced of Lydia's guilt in the deaths of his father and step-siblings. Soon after his meeting with Reverend Payson, Cornelius took his suspicions to the district attorney. He urged the man to exhume all seven corpses in the struck family plot. The DA reluctantly agreed to look into the matter. But by then, Lydia had already packed up her things and moved on. For the first time in Lydia's life, she felt completely free of all her burdens. And also, for the first time, she felt the possibilities life presented were endless. The sponsor of today's podcast is Surfshark. Let's talk about your online protection because, frankly, you could use some. Websites, hackers, and various third parties track your online activities across the Internet. Even your internal provider can spy on your online activity and sell that data to third parties. But you can avoid that with a VPN. It hides your location and makes it more difficult to identify you from a crowd of users. Think of a VPN as a safety net from any bad guys trying to target you. And it doesn't end there. You know those pop-ups that say unavailable in your location? Well, you can forget about those if you have a VPN. Switch your virtual location and access any content, website, or app that's blocked in your country. Now, let's say you're the type of person who likes to have a safety net for your safety net. Well, Surfshark has your back. You can have even more protection if you add a data leak detection system called Surfshark Alert. Our antivirus system and even a private search engine, Surfshark Search. So try Surfshark risk-free with a 30-day money-back guarantee get surfshark VPN at surfshark.deals/tc. Enter promo code TC for 83% off and 3 extra months free. You heard me right. That's 3 extra months for free. That's surfshark.deals/tc. And now, back to the show. For a while, Lydia worked as a clerk in a sewing machine store on Canal Street. One of the customers who came into the shop regularly was a man named James Curtis. He and Lydia struck up a fast friendship, and after the shop went out of business, Curtis offered Lydia a new job. He needed a live-in nurse to help care for his elderly invalid mother in Stratford, Connecticut. The job paid $8 per month and included room and board. Lydia jumped at the opportunity. But Lydia's job working as Mrs. Curtis's personal caregiver didn't last very long. She soon learned about a wealthy local farmer named Dennis Hurlbert who had a bit of a reputation as a miser. Most of the locals referred to him as Old Hurlbert. The farmer's wife had died recently, and he was in the market to hire a dependable housekeeper. Lydia was not only able to secure the job, but soon caught the man's eye in other ways as well. With only a few days of working for Old Hurlbert, the man began making his intentions known that he was interested in marrying Lydia. Lydia. This courtship only took a few more days before Lydia agreed to marry the elderly man. It certainly helped sway her decision after he told her that once they were wed, everything that was his would be hers as well. Immediately after the couple were married, Lydia insisted that her husband write out a new will, leaving everything to her. For a little over a year, the couple appeared to be happy together. Neighbors saw the way Lydia would warmly greet her husband with a kiss whenever he returned home. Lydia settled into this new domestic life and performed all her wifely duties that were expected of her during the era. She cooked for him and cleaned for him and even shaved him because old Hurlbert's gnarled hands shook too much to hold the razor steady. Three times a week, Lydia would scrape the razor along her husband's wrinkled neck. It was during these sessions where Lydia held the razor close to the man's carotid artery that she began to wonder once again what life would be like for her without old Hurlbert in it. It was on one Sunday morning before church as Lydia shaved her husband that the old man finally began the slow act of dying. She had just lathered up old Hurlbert when he told her he was feeling dizzy and needed to step outside for some fresh air. He went out only to return a few minutes later, claiming he was feeling a bit better. But as Lydia began to shave him again, old Hurlbert once again began feeling unwell. They decided to skip church that day so that old Hurlbert could relax and recuperate. Only as the day wore on, old Hurlbert's condition rapidly grew worse. The following day, after word got around that old Hurlbert had taken ill, a neighbor brought over a bucket of fresh clams. Lydia took the clams and cooked them up in a pot of chowder, which she seasoned personally with her secret spice blend. She helped her husband consume an entire bowl of her special chowder and got him to wash it down with a glass of hard cider that she had also put a little something extra into. By that evening, old Hurlburt was writhing in pain. He was racked with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and convulsion. His fever spiked, and he felt an insatiable thirst that would not go away. His skin went deathly pale, and by the following morning, his throat had constricted to the point where he could barely speak. Although he did manage to gasp out his desire for a taste of a particular favorite medicine, Ostetter's stomach bitters. This was a popular medicinal product from the late 19th century which only stood to reason considering how many people who consumed it swore they felt wonderful after taking a few swigs. This was of course much less due to the liquid having any real medicinal value, and rather because the main ingredient was 90 proof alcohol. Lydia, ever the dutiful wife, helped her husband consume some of the alcoholic medicine, but only after she had doctored it with her own secret ingredient. By Tuesday, the old man's pain had grown far beyond anything he could bear. He begged Lydia to summon a doctor, but by the time the town doctor arrived, he took one look at old Hurlbert and decided it was already far too late to help him. After the old man's heart finally quit beating, the doctor remained at a loss as to what exactly killed him. He ultimately attributed his death to a form of cholera. Old Hurlbert's death left Lydia with what would have been a considerable inheritance back in the 1860s. More than $20,000 in real estate and another $10,000 in cash. For the first time in Lydia's life, due was set financially. Greed was certainly a powerful motivating factor that drove Lydia to kill throughout her life. But it doesn't explain why, even after she finally inherited enough money to live off of the rest of her life, she still went on to kill again. A few months after old Hurlbert's death, Lydia found herself being courted by a factory worker named Horatio Sherman. Sherman was a widower whose first wife had died the previous year. This left him with four children and a live-in mother-in-law to care for. This also meant he was desperate for some domestic help to take some of the burden of caring for them off his shoulders. Although Sherman had a poor reputation around town, he was also known for his outgoing personality and charming demeanor. That charm appeared to work on Lydia because she not only agreed to his marriage proposal, but she also agreed to pay off the $300 in debt he owed. The couple were married on september 7th 1870 this also gave the former lydia struck who had been born lydia danbury only to become lydia hurlbert the new surname by which she's most commonly known in true crime lore lydia sherman by mid-november lydia was already back to her old ways she mixed arsenic into the milk being fed to sherman's youngest child a four-month-old infant named frankie The baby boy had been sickly since birth, so it didn't take much to send him into violent convulsions, causing his death the very same night. Just one month later, Sherman's 14-year-old daughter Ada fell ill as she was putting up her church's Christmas decorations. Ada was a sweet and kind girl, and her sudden illness was taken hard by everyone who knew and loved her. Lydia had fixed the girl a cup of arsenic-laced tea and insisted she drink it all down. Later that night, as Ada grew weaker and weaker, Lydia fixed her a second cup. But unlike her baby brother, Ada was strong and healthy prior to that day. She hung on for several more days after drinking the poison tea before finally dying on New Year's Eve. The rapid succession of two of his children dying devastated Sherman. He'd always been a heavy drinker, but Sherman went on a full-blown bender after his beloved Ada died. Near the end of April, Sherman left one day and didn't come back. His 17-year-old son, Nelson, then headed off to New Haven to look for his father. Lydia agreed to give Nelson a bit of money to help him locate Sherman. He found his father in what was described as a den of low people, and after that he dragged him home. Sherman went straight to bed and remained there for days, claiming he wasn't feeling well. In order to cheer him up, Lydia made him a cup of hot chocolate. That night, Sherman became nauseous and began experiencing severe abdominal pain. The following morning, Lydia summoned the family physician, Dr. Beardsley. He was confused by Sherman's symptoms. This didn't resemble any of the times before he had treated the man after he drank too much. He ended up prescribing a small dose of morphine for the man's pain and a pill that was made mostly of mercury that was to be taken every two hours. Lydia was happy to oblige. Every two hours, she fed her husband another mercury pill, washing it down each time with a special drink she mixed herself. The next morning, the doctor returned and was shocked to see how much worse Sherman's condition had grown. His breathing was labored to the point where he struggled for each breath. He had an unquenchable thirst, and the pain in his gut was unbearable. Dr. Beardsley prescribed some brandy and water, then left Lydia with him to take care of her husband. By the time the doctor returned again the following morning, Sherman was obviously dying. His pulse and breathing were almost non-existent. His skin had taken on a deathly pallor. It was only then that Dr. Beardsley began to notice that Sherman's symptoms resembled that of someone suffering from arsenic poisoning. During one of his few remaining lucid moments, Dr. Beardsley was able to question Sherman and ask him if he'd consumed anything lately that might have caused this reaction. Sherman said the only food and drink he'd had over the last several days was what his beloved Lydia had served him. He died the following morning on May 12, 1871. This was the first time since Cornelius Strzok raised suspicions about Lydia that someone else in authority began to speculate about the possibility of foul play. Beardsley consulted with another colleague named Kinney, and the two men both concluded the death of Horatio Sherman had all the telltale symptoms of deliberate arsenic poisoning. On May twentieth, the two doctors performed an autopsy on Sherman, removing both his stomach and liver, and shipped them off to a toxicology professor at Yale for study. Three weeks later, they received the results. They were conclusive for the man to have consumed a massive quantity of arsenic. There was more than enough poison to have killed at least three men, and probably more. The doctors informed the authorities, and soon an arrest warrant was issued for Lydia Sherman. Although by then, Lydia had moved from Connecticut and was now living in New Brunswick. Several police officers tailed her to New Jersey where they set up surveillance around her where she was staying. While this was going on, the bodies of Frankie and Ada Sherman were exhumed and their organs were examined for arsenic. This was followed by an exhumation of Dennis Hurlbert, and he too exhibited massive amounts of arsenic in his system. They also learned how Lydia had purchased a bottle of powdered arsenic from a druggist right around the same time her first husband and first six children began dying off. On June 7, 1871, Lydia headed to New York for a shopping trip where she was placed under arrest by a police detective and a deputy sheriff just after she arrived at a train station. She was then taken back to New Haven where she was charged with the murder of her husband, Horatio Sherman. As the string of bodies Lydia left behind became public news, the press would eventually begin referring to her as the worst female murderer since Lucretia Borgia, an infamous Italian poisoner of noble birth. Different newspapers referred to Lydia Sherman as the murderess of Connecticut, the Derby Poisoner, and even the most hated woman in America. When curiosity seekers swarmed the courthouse to get a look at her, they were surprised by just how ordinary she was. She didn't look like some evil monster, just a simple 48-year-old woman who kept her head wrapped up in a shawl to shield her from the screaming crowds. Some newspapers tried garnering sympathy for her, describing her as a woman caught up in dire circumstances. But as details of Lydia Sherman's crimes became public, especially the murder of so many children, public opinion quickly soured on her. Lydia's trial lasted eight days. Her defense attorney tried to convince the jury that Horatio Sherman's death might have been an accidental poisoning from drinking tainted water, or perhaps the man had attempted suicide. But the jury didn't buy either argument. And ultimately, Lydia Sherman was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. Interestingly, the story of Lydia Sherman piqued the public's interest in true crime stories from that era. Several books about Lydia's life and crimes were rushed into print. Her lengthy written confession was also published and became a minor bestseller as well. There was even a popular song written about her that went like this. Lydia Sherman is plagued with rats. Lydia has no faith in cats. So Lydia buys some arsenic, and then her husband gets sick. And then her husband, he does die, and Lydia's neighbors wonder why. At the time, the press declared the crimes of Lydia Sherman to be some of the worst mass murders ever seen in human history. There were claims that her story would be one that would never be forgotten. So it's all the more ironic today that the story of Lydia Sherman is almost unknown today. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Massey, Asalia, and Matt. I really and truly appreciate your support. And thank you to all my other patrons as well. I couldn't do this without you. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. Another way you can help support the show is to check out our merch store where you can purchase all sorts of conspirators' t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and much, much more. If you're interested, I'll put a link to both my Patreon and store in the show notes. Yet another great way you can help us out that won't cost a dime is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not an Apple, not to worry. You can also find our show in most of the places you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Stitcher. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can list our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us on the social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. You can even write us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.